Hey, what's up, man? How are you? Not so much. How about Long yourself? What's up? Good to see you. Hopefully, we get some cameras. Yeah. But yeah. You got cracked down. What else do you yeah, need? Yeah, baby. <laughs> we got cracked down. I'm Garth Mullins. This is Crackdown. Episode 42, Kids on the Block, Part 1, Bones. Hi. How's it going? Good. What are you doing? I'm recording the meeting. Cool. Yeah. It's a cloudy Wednesday, and we're at McLean Park on Vancouver's downtown east side. Members of the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users are setting up a tent and some chairs in advance of a hastily planned press conference. All right, so the media will be arriving, folks. Just uh, look pretty for the cameras, folks. The press conference is in response to a new bill recently introduced by the B.C. NDP government, making it illegal to use drugs in almost all public spaces, including building entrances, parks, sports fields, and at the beach. Here's B.C. Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, Jennifer Whiteside. So that gives police tools back that... Um, that they have now really to to move people along, to really say that, you know, using in a playground at a spray park where kids are present is not uh, is not okay, and that space is not, not a space for, for that kind of activity. The press release for the BC NDP government's new policy kind of stung. In large block letters, it reads... BC secures measures to ensure families feel safe accessing public spaces. And below the headline is a picture of three preteens smiling and blowing bubbles on a summer's day. The implication is pretty clear. Drug users are a threat to these kids. Our very presence is menacing and dangerous to families. In other words, we're monsters. Folks, uh, we're going to start now. Thank you all for coming. Eventually, the media shows up to the park and sets up their cameras. And Vandu community organizer Vincent Tao takes the mic. We're gathering here today to speak out against the forthcoming ban on consumption that's uh, being legislated by the BC NDP. Uh, This is coming down the pipe after only eight months of the decriminalization pilot project starting in January 31st. It's only been eight months, and the BC NDP is already backtracking on its own commitments to the safety of drug users and the safety of all communities here. We are seeing OPSs, we're seeing harm reduction being attacked and rolled back all across the nation. This is while overdose deaths continue to increase at a dramatic rate. And meanwhile, both sides of the government, whether it's the BC NDP or its opposition in BC United, is using stigmatizing deadly language, labeling drug users as somehow unsafe, unsafe for communities, unsafe for children and families. And what do we say, folks? We call that bullshit. bullshit. Who here is a parent? Put up your hands. We have a lot of parents here, family people. Do you love your kids? Yeah. Of course. Do we love all kids and families? Yeah. We must fight back for our lives, folks. Is that right, folks? And for all families and all children, we need safe supply and harm reduction. Is that right, folks? Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, and so for the press, do you have any questions for, for, the, uh, for the folks here? I got one from Keith Baldry from Global. 
Um, are you saying that someone should be able to use drugs sitting on a beach near a family with children or in front of a library or community centre? As long as you're not turning around and showing it, like showing it to everybody, you can do it, do it discreetly. Same as an insolent user would do. And again, I think this is missing the point that the government is not giving people the choice. Drug users would prefer to use inside if there were spaces to do so. If there was housing, if there were OPSs, safe injection sites, safe inhalation sites, which are duly needed in this country and across, you know, across BC. So to ask that question, oh, are you going to use in front of a, uh, like a baby's face? Again, this is not, this is a bad faith question. Right. Like, why are you asking that? Why aren't you asking the questions that we want answers to? Why isn't there housing? <coughs> if you want to take away our right to use drugs outside, in any capacity, and give, us give us places to use. And give housing. And give us a place That's to live. Right. Across the country, politicians and the media are fear-mongering about children's safety. They're using a faux concern about families to attack the harm reduction and drug user movement. And their rhetoric has played an instrumental role in scaling back life-saving public health responses to the overdose crisis. But now young people are pushing back. They're saying they don't want to see harm reduction attacked in their name. Over the next little while in the show, we're going to tell a story that the media has largely ignored. The story of how young Canadians actually experience the overdose crisis the ways they fight for their survival and the ways they're organizing in their communities. We're calling the series Kids on the Block after the phrase that we yell to each other when a family passes by on Hastings Street to tell each other to pause on the rock smoking or dealing or whatever. On today's show, we present part one of that series, the story of Bones. Kids on the block! Kids on the block! Kids on the block! Okay, I'm getting into my tr mom's truck, not my truck. <laughs> I don't have a truck. Yeah, this is my second, third time to a pharmacy today. I'm so lucky I have transportation. I just couldn't imagine how this shit is for people our town's small, but still, like, fucking, I don't know. There's people that are living with disabilities, might not have transportation. Like, fuck. Okay, I'm at the pharmacy now. Oh, God. The guy you're hearing right now is 18 years old. He lives with his parents in a small town in Western Canada. During the week, he takes online college courses to become a social services worker. And on the weekends, he works at a local movie theater. We asked him what alias he'd like to use on the show. And he said, call me Bones, like the forensic anthropologist on TV. Zach, I need water samples and temperature readings from the pond. Right away, Dr. Brennan. I just, chemicals really interest me, like how chemistry really interests me. <laughs> Cops get stuck, we bring in people like you, you know, squints. You know, squinting things. Oh, you mean people with very high IQs and basic reasoning skills? 
thanks very much for making some time for us. Yeah, thank you very much for inviting me. Hey, can you tell me where you are right now? Can you just describe what's going on there? Yeah, well, I'm at a skate park, and there's kids doing tricks on skateboards, so you can hear the, the wheels on the ground and concrete. Why did you choose this location as opposed to, say, at home? Um, well, stigma if you could. <laughs> I mean, if you really want to be real about it, just kind of, I didn't want people listening in on what I'm talking about. Is that, uh, is that your family? Yeah, but yeah. I didn't want them to have to hear anything that they didn't want to hear, I guess. Oh, you know, I completely understand. Like, uh, I, I never talked to my parents about this stuff, really, at all. I mean, they knew shit was going on, but honestly, the way that they found out most about my life is listening to the podcast, so I, <laughs> I hear you. I would have done the same thing. <laughs> I'll use combustion for 50. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah. Ooh, now we're, now we're even. But. We asked Bones what he likes to do for fun, and he sent us this recording. He told us, this is my girlfriend and I hanging out and taking some MDMA. We're watching Pokemon on TV and also playing with Pokemon cards. We're really into Pokemon. <laughs> I'm gonna do my headbutt now. You're the one who left it at that center. It's the moment we've all been waiting for. I'm gonna use combustion. And combust all over you. I think through elementary school and stuff, I had always been like the weird kid type of thing. Like in a way that I was like goofy and like clowned around and like, I don't know, like eat a bug or something. I didn't go to the middle school that all my friends from elementary school went to. So I just kind of had a trouble fitting in. Bone says as far back as he can remember, he's felt nervous to talk. He thinks it's maybe because he had family members who would constantly cut him off. People who wanted him to act super respectful, to make sure that he was never offending anyone. But regardless of how it started, Bone says he often feels like there's all this energy in his head. He'd hear his voice cascading over itself, repeating anxious thoughts. Like, did I mess up? Am I seeming dumb? Does this person like me? The voices in his head fall over each other, cascading into a kind of fog. And sometimes it gets so loud that it actually drowns out his own real voice while he's trying to talk. Yeah, sorry I'm so nervous. <laughs> I don't know why I was nervous. I just couldn't get my words out sometimes. Okay, right now, I'm walking through the mall. <clears throat> right now, I'm walking through the mall. Going to shoppers, because that's where I have to go every day. 
Bones has been on a formulation of methadone called Metadol D for a couple of years, since he was 16. And he says it's helped him make his life less chaotic. It also helps him avoid the toxic drug supply, which these days has been killing more people than ever. How are you doing today? Pretty good. How are you good? guys? Good, thanks. The downside of being on Metadol D is that the doctor has bones on a witnessed ingestion, which means he has to go to the pharmacy every day, sometimes multiple times in the same day. And going to Shoppers Drug Mart can be uncomfortable. Bones says that when he goes in there by himself, the security guards leave him alone. But when he comes in with his indigenous girlfriend, they watch her like a hawk, constantly following her around the store. Bones says that he's politely reached out to the store's manager to say this seems pretty racist to him. He explained that they both worked in the mall and that they both had to get prescriptions filled there every day. They'd never steal from them, and the manager said they'd cut it out, but they never did. Bones and his girlfriend still get watched when they're in there. There you go. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day, guys. When I was like 13, I had kind of started like experimenting around with like party drugs, I guess you could say, with air quotations like cocaine and MDMA and um, that kind of thing. I found that, you know, like stimulants gave me like the if I needed to kind of like be a more outgoing person. Right. <laughs> you can talk with someone for hours on a stimulant and it's a really good uh, conversation starter is a line of cocaine. <laughs> but even with the help of stimulants, Bones still found it hard to make friends. He says his natural inclination is to just stay home by himself. But he did have one friend, we'll call her Jackie, who'd hit him up on Snapchat, and she'd gently persuade him to come out of his shell. At Jackie's behest, Bones would head over to the old log behind the school. It was a massive fallen pine tree, the perfect height to sit on with a blanket. By the time Bones got there, Jackie would often have assembled a huge group, sometimes around 20 young teenagers, sitting on the log, smoking weed, eating pizza. She brought people together. She was kind of like a mom almost, or like a grandma. Like, <laughs> bring, she brought- How old was she? Uh, she was only, <laughs> we, she was only 13, but. So she's like a 13 year old grandma. <laughs> yeah. We didn't know about like how MDMA, if you're doing it over and over and over again, it can really kind of squeeze out your serotonin reserves or, and make you kind of not feel too great about yourself for a long time. Um, and we were really kind of going a little too hard on it. The MDMA may have created like a sadness that could have led to her suicide. Right. I think being educated about the substances that we were taking could have maybe prevented her death. After Jackie's death, Bones was a mess. His parents pulled him out of school for a while to give him time to grieve, and Bones would go and visit Jackie's grave on the nearby reserve with his friends. But nothing helped. I just felt so chaotic and angry at the world and 
Like I didn't, I didn't feel like I had much of a future. I didn't have any clue where I wanted to go with my life. I didn't hear good things about people who use substances, and I was one of those people, so you start to kind of project that onto yourself. I, I just didn't believe in myself. I gotta wash my hands. Let's go wash my hands. Opening the cooker up, that's what I usually do. I used to crush pills with the tip of my syringe, but I just crush them with the lighter now. When Bones uses, he does everything right. He uses drug testing or sometimes scores a prescription opioid from a known source. So he knows what he's getting and how strong it is. He uses new harm reduction supplies. He even tries to stay hydrated. The only thing is, he doesn't have access to an overdose prevention site. And so instead, he often quietly and secretly shoots up at home. Now, I usually only do this once a day. It used to be a lot more than that. <laughs> like seven or eight times a day. <laughs> Lighting. I'm not too sure why exactly I do. Still use every morning. I mean, I'm in school, I'm working. Um, I'm still doing everything that I'm supposed to be doing. And I mean, do I wish I was doing this? Some days I don't, some days I some days I'm like, man, there's nothing better than feeling better. <laughs> like, I, I wish we had no PS here so I could just go do this somewhere else, but. And I should be in. And push the plunger down. There you go. Silence quiets things down for sure. Things took a turn in Bone's life when he was in grade 10. That year, local media ran a news story about some kids who took their MDMA to get tested and discovered it had a bunch of fentanyl in it. That was concerning to Bones and his friends for obvious reasons, and he remembers the story being shared pretty widely on Facebook. But this also presented Bones with a kind of an opportunity. Up to that point, he had no idea that his town had a drug user-run organization working out of a storefront not far from where he lived. He did some online research and discovered they had a free drug checking service. You could just bring whatever drugs you had down and they'd tell you all about their chemical makeup. No questions asked. Bones was instantly intrigued. Uh, I was with this friend, yeah, this friend named L, I'll call him L, and when he said he had these drugs that he wanted to like get tested, I was like, oh, perfect, we can go try this. So were you nervous? Were you nervous going up there? Oh yeah, so nervous. Um, me and my friend had knocked on the door 
And they were like, oh, come in. We were just kind of amazed that like we could give them our drugs and they didn't take them or call the cops and they weren't like, you're some kid, what the heck, you shouldn't have this. Yeah, I remember just like getting it back and being told what was in it and it was actually what we thought it was. It was supposed to be MDMA and it was all they could find was MDMA. Like that's so crazy that we can be told exactly what's in it. When we started bringing our cocaine there, we started learning that a lot of it was just like super cut with phenacetin. And yeah, it just kind of gave us more information about what we were actually doing. Every time Bones took his drugs to the storefront, he'd hang out for a while and look around. It was a warm and cozy space with a garden out back and computers that anyone could use if they needed to get some work done. Often there'd be someone taking a nap on the couch. Some of the time, when Bones would come into the storefront, the organization would be running a meeting with its members, and Bones could overhear older drug users talking about how they were mistreated at the hospital or how the cops were fucking with them, and everyone would be brainstorming solutions. It was a positive space, and Bones felt a pull to be there as much as he could. So when he was given a careers day project at school, requiring five hours of volunteer work, Bones knew exactly where he was going to go. He went back to the storefront, this time with the signature sheet from his school in hand. And he asked if he could talk to the director of the organization, a guy we'll call Jay. Like Bones, Jay used drugs every day. But unlike Bones, Jay wasn't keeping it a secret. Yeah, he was he was very well put together. He had he probably had one of his cool harm reduction hats that had a rainbow on it. He wore like a he wore a Rolex. The first time I seen that, I was like, wow, that's awesome. And he was like, of course you can volunteer here. The first ever time I went and went to volunteer at this organization, um, one of my requirements for volunteering was that I had to go to one of the meetings. I remember a lot of it was like, um, awareness for people, like what, what the drug supply was looking like, what batches of stuff to try and be careful of. And after that meeting, he, he kind of sat me down and he asked me if I was somebody that personally used substances, and if I was, he'd really want me to like start coming to the meetings. Um, so I did. <laughs> Bones kept volunteering with Jay long after his required five hours were up. Often Jay would pick him up from school and take him on a drive in his black Toyota pickup truck. They'd go looking for people sleeping rough in the cold and they'd drop off winter clothes or hand warmers. Other times they'd give people a lift to the bottle depot with their big bags of cans. Bones said that Jay never put on any music. He'd just talk and talk, often not leaving much room to respond but Bones wouldn't have it any other way. Jay was giving him a master class in harm reduction, activism, and the drug war. And Bones would stare out the window, dreaming of one day becoming exactly like Jay. He was, he was the first one that kind of told me, like, you deserve love and compassion if you, if you use drugs. 
and I, I, I'm working on that every day. It's not like I've learned that. It's, it's, it's something that I'm like working on that everybody's yeah. working on, right? Like accepting yeah. themselves. I mean, themself. I, I'm in my fifties. It's taken me a long time. It's like a long, long fucking road. But you're you're started down the road way ahead of me, man. So you're, it's not going to take you that long. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the third first thing we should do is a land acknowledgement. I had already written down a little agenda, <clears throat> and then I wanted to kind of because there will. There might be new people, like, go over the mission statement, maybe. Okay. One year into volunteering, and with a lot of support from the drug user organization and Jay's partner, Bones and his girlfriend launched their own youth group. The goal was to reach all the young people that they knew from around town, especially the ones who seemed most at risk of overdose. We just wanted anybody who was using substances to kind of have like a place to come ask questions that isn't, isn't the internet. Oh, hello guys. Hi. What's food? <laughs> we have muffins, I'm sorry. We were gonna make cookies. Cool. The first ever meeting we had, we were unorganized, but we had this thing that we wanted to do and that was try and teach the other people around us what we were starting to learn. And our first meeting ever, we got six youth to come. Within a couple months, we had actually started to grow it quite a bit to just people who wanted to come, not just people who were our friends. Angie, did you come to one of these before? Okay, I thought you did. You guys can sit wherever you want. We were just getting stuff ready. Okay, well, I guess we can start. You have local people, you know, parents and stuff that have sometimes uh, opposed the group. Can you tell me about that? We've definitely had parents that like have called and asked about the group because they seen a poster. And then once I tell them about it, they're like, uh, no way, that's not for my child. They don't do drugs. And one time we, we were having a meeting and a mother brought the police to our group because they were looking for her daughter. Um, we saw the police, so we told everybody to put all their weed away or anything they had, any bongs or anything that were out or any pipes or whatever. And it, it went pretty smoothly. Luckily, the cops weren't rude to us or anything. We didn't tell them what was going on. It just kind of looked like a bunch of kids hanging out. Like a lot of people just didn't understand what we were trying to do. Oh, have you two ever been trained like, in how to administer naloxone before? Maybe we can do that after this, because I like to train people who haven't. Because if you've never never been trained, it's good to know. And it's good to have a kid. Cause... I remember at the beginning of the, like at the very start of the group, we didn't have youth that were actually like comfortable like grabbing any like supplies or asking for anything or like fentanyl strip, test strips or pipes or anything and as as it went along we really had people like actually just get comfortable and not care so like if you had to guess uh, how many people do you think you've trained on naloxone over 40 youth and that's quite a bit for our small little town right Fine show 
proposes that, but I'll quote uh, Giuseppe Ganci, the, the head of Last Door Recovery, 100% of all the people I've met who are on safer supply sell their supply. I've never met anybody who's taken all of it. And so it gets sold to kids and the profits are then used for fentanyl. And then those kids buy the fentanyl when the hydromorphine is not. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to interrupt there. It's getting noisy again. Uh, from the top, please, just start off. I just want everybody to listen to each other, listen to whoever's speaking. And then we'll- right now, at all the different levels of government and from different newspapers and journalists and stuff, there's this kind of uh, big, big fear-mongering campaign going on. And, and they kind of put youth at the heart of it. You know, uh, people like Pierre Polyev, who's the leader of the Conservative Party, who's probably going to be Canada's next prime minister. You know, he's saying that we have to protect youth from these safe supply programs. You know, that, that uh, youth have to be um, sort of isolated from harm reduction, that harm reduction and safe supply just cause trouble for youth. And it's part of the reason why we're making this episode is because there's this big conversation going on amongst powerful people who want to attack harm reduction in the name of youth because they know what's best for youth. And I, I don't know if you've been following much of this, but it, it must seem kind of frustrating to be organizing on the ground, uh, a young person yourself, and having all of this done and said in your name. It is, yeah. I do see a lot of a lot of the pushback against harm reduction in the name of youth. And I, I, I think it's all bullshit. <laughs> I... I think they just don't understand that youth use drugs for some reason. I mean, we've tried to show them, and I think, I don't think harm reduction is getting youth high. It's like to make sure they don't die. If, if all these harm reduction programs and all these prescribed safer supply programs were just rolled back and stopped, there would, there's going to be a lot more loss and a lot more harm. And it, it's it's hard to think about because, yeah, I mean, like, you don't want to think about how bad that might be for me, right? And, like, it's a very real possibility. I thought I would make a recording, I guess, because I have a lot of work to do. So I guess I could probably get some good typing sounds. <laughs> oh, I have way too much work to do. Bones is on track to graduate with a certificate in social work by the end of next spring. He hopes to use that education to land a job working in harm reduction, just like his mentor Jay, who passed away from an overdose earlier this year. You were saying that uh, you really, really felt like you had no future. Uh, You couldn't imagine what you would do and who you would be. Do you feel a sense of a future now? Yeah, I feel like I might have a career maybe helping people. I would really want to help people. And I really think it has turned into quite the future for me. Yeah, I think what I what I really notice is that there's all of this media attention. There's all of this discussion happening. What I often feel like is missing is the voice of, of the young people who I've worked with for the past you know, 15 or more years. This is Dania Fast, an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. 
Danya is also one of the producers of the story you just heard, along with Professor Rebecca Saw from the University of Calgary. Recently, Danya and activist Kali Sedgmore worked with a group of young people to develop some harm reduction calls to action for government. We invited Professor Fast to come down to the Crackdown studio to talk about those calls to action and to reflect on what we just heard from Bones. What jumps out at you about the Bones story? The main thing, there's so, okay, there's so much, but what really jumps out to me is how Bones talks about futures. I didn't hear good things about people who use substances, and I was one of those people, so you start to kind of project that onto yourself. I, I just didn't believe in myself. And then as, as the narrative progresses, we hear about this harm reduction organizing that Bones is doing, how Bones is coming together with friends and creating real change in terms of harm reduction organizing and naloxone training and all of these things, but also just creating these connections. Um, to me, that is like the most powerful thing that we can that we can try to engender in young people is this sense of, of future possibility and of, of wanting a future and feeling like there is a future. And I think for for so many young people, these kinds of spaces and, and harm reduction is is a part of that. Yeah, I really uh, related to that part where he maybe felt a little a little unsure, a little nervous about going into the you know, the drug user organizing organization. Uh, me and my friend had knocked on the door and they were like, oh, come in. You know, like when I when I was starting out, when I was, uh, you know, 14, 15, I was around the Granville area, you know, and I was a little scared of the downtown east side. And um, but I mean, eventually that's where you needed to go to get needles and all that, you know. So, I, you know, I eventually found my way there and I eventually found my way to drug user organizing and found a real great sense of belonging there. You know, like as a criminalized drug user, all your agency and self-determination is taken away from you. And when you decide to fight back with other people who are facing the same kind of things, you start to take back some of that agency and self-determination. And I can see that's what's giving Bones a bit of a sense of a future. Um, have you two ever been trained like, in how to administer naloxone before? Maybe we can do that after this, because I like to train people who haven't. It took me so long before I was willing to talk publicly about any of this stuff. And, you know, he's, he's getting there very quick and being an organizer uh, in his school and facing the, the criticism of parents and all that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's incredibly inspiring, of course, but I, I think it also really points to we need spaces like this place that that Bones eventually goes to where young people can come together. They can build connections. They can build shared causes. They can build activism. Even in Vancouver, we do not have a youth-dedicated overdose prevention site. And I think, you know, what Rebecca and I really want to do with this project is we want to fight for every young person like Bones across Canada to have access to, to a space like this. Now, I usually only do this once a day. It used to be a lot more than that. <laughs> it's pretty gutsy of him to uh, record using uh, for us too. It really shows the reality of youth use drugs too. And that's something that's an uncomfortable truth, I think, for politicians. 
The other the other thing I would just highlight is is that um, in terms of my my work with young people across the last fifteen years, one thing that's really been consistent is just how easy it is to get drugs. I I don't think that things have changed <laughs> no, <I laughs> because know. we now have. Come on, when you um, were young, it wasn't hard to get drugs. When <laughs> I was young, when I was going to high school in this city in the eighties, I you know you could get it pretty quick. You know, even the hard stuff. So yeah, I mean it's just. It's a fu- they're fucking deluding themselves out there if they think that they can stop drugs. You can't stop drugs from getting into jails. They're not going to stop a kid who wants drugs ain't going to get stopped from wanting the drugs. At least they could get a hold of something that won't kill them, though, you know? Silence. Quiets things down for sure. We didn't know about like how MDMA, if you're doing it over and over and over again, it can really kind of squeeze out your serotonin reserves or, and make you kind of not feel too great about yourself for a long time. Um, and we were really kind of going a little too hard on it. Until very recently, Bones was in high school, and it kind of made me wonder what kind of education, like drug education, do they get there? Or is it just propaganda? You know, there's no standard like Ministry of Education package curriculum that they have to teach like math or science or whatever. When I was a kid coming up, we had, you know, a Christian fundamentalist premier who was opposed HIV AIDS education for people in schools, you know, students in schools. So I didn't really get the right education. And certainly the drug education that I got was just like, you know, some guy came in because it was part of his release conditions that he had to go talk to kids. And he just kind of hollered at us about, don't, don't do drugs, you go to jail and you kids wouldn't last a second in there, blah, blah, blah. You know, and so it wasn't very, wasn't very helpful uh, information. Yeah, I mean, I think Bones says it, right? That uh, he and his his friends are now providing this information that they wish that they'd had around dosing. I mean, these are not things that are you know, being addressed in our our school system. I I worked with a group of of young people in Vancouver to develop some harm reduction calls to action. And the very first call to action is, you know, we want accurate information about drugs in our schools. And that includes the risks of different kinds of drugs, but also the benefits, information about how to use drugs more safely. Um, And because we don't provide young people spaces where they can come together and support each other and use drugs more safely and share information, um, they they just don't have this information, which can be incredibly dangerous. You know, I think that um, Rebecca made a good point uh, in this. She said that sex education has moved from you know i don't know in the in the mid 20th century from just don't don't have sex until marriage or something has moved to to show or to teach kids um how to avoid uh pregnancy and how to avoid stis and all that sort of thing and it's sort of accepted that kids are going to have sex but but drug education has not moved like in that same way to accept that kids are going to use drugs and teach them about dosing and safety and stuff like that. You know, we talked to, you're going to hear from three people, but we talked to a lot more people in making this series. And everybody said 
whatever drug information they got through the schools, they were never warned of an overdose crisis. I mean, if all of these people, all of these right-wingers claim to care about kids so much, if they actually gave a shit, they would be warning people. They would be going door to door and saying there's a fucking overdose crisis out there. They would be warning people about the toxic drugs that are on the streets. They wouldn't be making a big deal about the thing on the side that's hardly available, the prescribed safe supply that, you know, 4% of us have been able to get occasionally. They wouldn't be making a big deal out of that. It just makes me think of something that um, the young people that I worked with on these harm reduction calls to action really wanted to emphasize. They really wanted this line in the paper that we we published about these harm reduction calls to action. They said, you know, when we're denied harm reduction, when we're denied these spaces to connect, to organize, it makes us feel like our lives aren't worth saving. And to me, that is so incredibly heartbreaking But it's also so incredibly dangerous because when somebody thinks, you know, my life's not worth saving, uh, I may as well use more drugs and use them in these riskier ways. Yeah, I mean, I think when I saw that image from the government press release of the three young people blowing bubbles happily in the sunshine, it's like, if you're those people, we're going to care about you and look out for you. But if you're not, we're going to banish you, banish you from this skate park or this sidewalk, bus stop, door to an apartment building, banish you from a huge list of public spaces and not to somewhere, not no go use in the OPS or go to this affordable housing, to nowhere, to the alley or to nowhere or to just out of our sight. You know, so you're either blowing bubbles or you're a write-off, whether you're young or old. And I can only imagine if I was 18, how that would just get right in under the wire. And maybe I wouldn't even be conscious of it. I'd just be like, oh, that whole world is not for me. I'm not invited. I'm outside of all that. So Vandu has come up with the user's code of conduct, or the user's code, we call it, kids on the block. When there's children and families on the sidewalk, shout out your neighbors to put away their gear. That way they know to put away their gear, not to blow their smoke out while the children are walking by so they're not exposed to it. We keep us safe. Time and time again, the government and cops leave us to die in the streets. Only a strong community of care can keep women, kids, and elders safe from harm. Uh, Be good to your neighbors. Crackdown is produced on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Our editorial board is Simona Marsh, Shelda Castor, Jeff Loudon, Dean Wilson, Laura Shaver, Raya Jean, and rest in peace, Dave Murray, Greg Frez, and Sharice Kiwaden. This episode was conceptualized, written, and produced by Sam Finn, Alex DeBoer, Lisa Hale, Bones, Dania Fast, Rebecca Saw, and me, Garth Mullins. The score was by James Ash and Sam Finn. Today's episode was supported in part by funds from the Canadian Institutes for Health Research, the Vancouver Foundation, and Michael Smith Health Research BC. If you like what we do, please support us at patreon.com slash crackdownpod. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and keep six. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah,
guys, give it up for Martin Stewart. Yeah.